read to the end of the chapter. It's just a handful of verses here. As Solomon continues to convey precious wisdom, the precious wisdom here. I'll begin reading. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all shall return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see? What will be after him? As far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, would you grant to us a sincere, not cynical, laying hold of the truths of your word. Lord, give us joy in our hearts to be here tonight. And may we see that this time we have to sit under the teaching and preaching of your word is itself a means whereby you are conforming us after the pattern of your dear son. For you long to make us holy, even as you are holy. And so by your spirit, work in us salvation. Now, even unto the end of our lives, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. We've seen in a number of occasions, even in my own short life on earth, trials go in ways I never thought they might go. Many of us remember where we were during the O.J. Simpson verdict and what was happening in that trial that captured the hearts of many Americans. Even more recently, the Rittenhouse trial that captured the attention of many in America There has been an expression oftentimes, even even in good courts, unrighteous verdicts. There is but one court in heaven and on earth where all that is good, all that is true, all that is just is declared good and true and just. And that is the council, the court of God himself. That is not the place in which we live. However, and this lamentable reality is the very thing that Solomon saw, not only in his day, but as he looked back on human history, the incredible presence of injustice and why injustice seems to rule in the place of righteousness and death itself. This sermon I entitled Death and Taxes, really it should be swapped. It should be taxes 
and death, the improper application of power, and that great fate that awaits us all in death. It's a happy sermon. I want you to be happy. (laughs) Death and taxes. I want to look at this section here in verses 16 through 22 under the two headings that I have listed, and you'll see them there. Actually, you won't because it's not in the bulletin this time because I copied two. The two points are this, injustice where it shouldn't be, and then secondly, death where it has always been. Injustice where it shouldn't be, and death where it has always been. I want us to look at this text with some text with some patience, some uh, carefulness, and even, uh, I would imagine, some understanding in our own lives of some experience of injustice. Now, let's look at this first point, injustice where it shouldn't be. Let's look at verse 16. Moreover, Solomon says, I saw under the sun, this refrain, which we should know by now means life on earth, the way it is, the inescapable reality of those who circle the sun day after day after day after day, life under the sun, this is the way it is. That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon is essentially saying, though it is not always the case, it is an inescapable reality that there is no true justice, not truly, under the sun. I read something recently in the past 50 years, 1.5 billion Children have been murdered in the womb. That's billion with a B. That's a fifth, roughly, of the world's population. That's not justice. The guilty go free, the innocent are punished. Even recently, I also read that there is some estimate that if you are a child living in Afghanistan today, one million children will die of starvation this winter. One million. Now, all of these things are happening, children, while you open your Christmas presents under the tree. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to help you understand what is really going on in the world. While you are comfortable in your Christmas pajamas... There is an enormous amount of injustice that plagues mankind. Now, where does that injustice come from? Well, it comes from those in power using their power for wicked ends. Those with some measure of influence using their influence for wicked ends, whether it is a corporate body, a state, or any public space, or perhaps any of the three public spheres that we see that are sort of circulating today, the family or the home, the church, and the state. There are many homes where fathers and mothers rule wickedly, and they are cruel. Many synagogues, churches, places of worship, there are bishops and priests and others who are unjust in their application of authority and power. And of course, in the courts of states where kings and judges and rulers of men, because of their wickedness, they are not fair and impartial in their treatment. And though we confess Lady Justice to be blind, she sees a lot. 
there is great injustice. And it is in these places where the weak, the vulnerable, or anyone that does not have the same power as another is oppressed. And this is what Solomon is lamenting. And where there is injustice, there is always a rise in violence, oppression, disorder, conflict, and distrust between all the parties involved. Now, this is not a plea for social justice. This is a plea for biblical justice. This is a plea for a, and a call for the sons of God to embrace what is true according to the law of God. Under the sun, Solomon remarks that this sort of thing happens a lot. And even if a just verdict is handed down, we are often slow to carry out the sentence. Ecclesiastes 8.11 speaks of that, that wickedness flourishes in the absence of speedy justice. And even in the best of systems, even in courts where every participant in the system, in the chain, in the legal chain, even if every one of those persons is a God-fearing person, mistakes are still often made. In the calling of witnesses, in the presentation of evidence, it is impossible to escape from injustice. Now, that isn't Solomon's central point. Solomon's central point is this. If we replace justice with wickedness, we get injustice. Because a house that is not built upon the foundation, the firm foundation of divine revelation as the source of truth and goodness will crumble. And so he continues. Not only does he say that in the place of justice there is wickedness, but in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. There can be no justice without righteousness. Sin is the problem. And not just sin, but pride in sin. There are many today who speak highly of the glorious secular democracies that our world is now populated with. Even some speak of America as a secular experiment. This is a denial not only of the history of America, but it is also a denial of the rule of law and how laws are formed and how they are actually implemented in society. To say that a secular law or that something is secular and lawful is to speak in an oxymoron. In fact, the only thing that is a law according to the law of secular ideology is what? Utilitarianism. The greatest good for, well, not the greatest number, the greatest good for whoever is calling the shots. And it's not the weak, it's not the vulnerable, it's not the poor, which is why Christ in the Old Testament constantly reminds Israel, you must consider the needs of widows and orphans, the poor, the sojourner, and the oppressed. And when you hand down sentences, you ought not to look at the finery of the garments on one side and the poverty of the person on the other and say, I think I prefer this one. Or Christ would say, do you go to the one dressed in fine robes and invite them to the head of the table? It is, it is a very natural pull to be pull to be partial in our treatment. And this notion that our nation is built upon a foundation in which we have jettisoned the reality of divine revelation 
is falling indeed. And we're seeing the outcome of that right now. The moral foundation is being eroded out from underneath us and there is nothing to hold us up. There can be no justice. There can be no civility. There can be no kindness between neighbors if we eliminate from the source and the carrying out of the rule of law, the source of law, and the carrying out of law, this reality that there is a divine lawgiver and that he sits above all things and we pay him homage. But if you do not live that way, you are behaving like a beast. In fact, Marx, Darwin, and others have gotten their wish, haven't they? We came from animals. We act like animals. We die like animals. And this is how Solomon links these two ideas. An unjust application of power and a reflection upon death itself. Now, we'll get to death in just a moment. If you're not cheerful enough, we'll get there. Don't worry. It's going to take a wonderful turn. The problem is that every system that is not built upon the law of God is a system that is destined to crumble under its own wicked weight. If it is not built upon the perfect law of God, it must bear bad fruit. And so every system must surrender to divine justice in this way, that there is a court, a higher court, to which all must appeal. There is a higher court to which every judge must account himself as having to give an account to the true judge of all the earth. And even then, with good judges, good litigators, honest juries, clean, easy evidence, there can still be injustice. And so, if you are looking for perfect justice on earth, you are looking in the wrong place. Now, some will say, let's just eliminate the courts then. Hmm. What would that lead to? Well, Twitter trials, and we know how those go, right? Instagram evidence. A trial by what? Not a jury of peers, but by the populace who know nothing or care nothing for justice whatsoever. Everyone loves to be a hangman. No one wants to hear evidence. Wicked judges will only bring injustice. And so Solomon, in this one little verse, as it is unpacked, that brings us all of these implications, says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Everyone that has ever been falsely accused, who has suffered under injustice, their hope isn't, well, maybe things will get better. But what? Maybe things will get better. Maybe things will get better when God, who is the only just judge, will judge what is right. And I'm not talking about karma. I'm not talking about the wicked getting theirs in this life, although sometimes that happens. In fact, for the, the, the reflection that we desire that in our hearts is when we see it in a tight little timeline, a little story, a little narration where the wicked, they flourish for a season, but then righteousness shines forth. And by the end of the story, we go, 
<sighs> just tie that with a little bow. That feels good. We don't get that in this life. But we will get it in the life that is to come. There is a place where true justice is found. Because there is a true and just judge. But guess what? He's not in Washington. He's not in Raleigh. He's in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean he's distant and remote. What it means is the manner in which Christ carries out his just judgments are not up to us, and we can appeal to him, but he controls the times and the seasons in which he carries out true justice. And sometimes, even in the whole span of our lives, we will never know justice. And you know what? For some of us, that is a grace. Because you either get justice or you get grace. You never get injustice with God. In fact, one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard is one by R.C. Sproul on the injustice of God, or in fact, that he is not unjust. He is either just or gracious. God, in his disposition to man, is either to treat men as they ought to be treated, as sinful rebels against his cosmic kingdom, or in mercy, as he comes to them and he offers them salvation and he gives them a sentence or acquits them, though they should have the sentence of death, eternal death, the second death, as Christ says in the book of Revelation. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Now, when we read this, we should say, okay, I can wait. I can wait. And you don't know how long you may have to wait. And it may be that God, in the midst of the injustice that you suffer, uses you in order to declare to a world that is in the chaos that you are in of injustice, that there is a time and place where true justice will be met out. And you should look forward to that day. Sometimes we think we're suffering unjustly, right, kids? My parents won't let me do acts like other friends' parents let them do. <laughs> and you think, when, there will be, when will there be true justice? And we say, well, careful what you wish for. There will come a time when all truths will be told. But with regards to justice, we ought to hope and have confidence in the higher court that is in heaven. This is what I mean by taxes. This is what I mean by injustice. While we are on earth under the sun, there will always be those in power who oppress the weak. Let's look at the second point. Death, where it has always been. Not only is there wickedness and the weight of injustice felt by this, those who are of this earth, under the fall, under the weight of sin, but death itself awaits all men. Congratulations. Not only is life hard, but you probably won't live that long. So, Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Bless us, everyone. (laughs) That reality is known by all of us. You learn the facts of life when you grow up on a farm. And one of the facts you learn is there's death. You bury a lot of animals in the backyard, in the field behind the house. I remember... (laughs) This isn't, it's, it's cute. 
I can't remember which animal it was. We've killed so many animals. Not intentionally. <laughs> we had a um, three-gun salute for one of ours. Red Rider BB guns, of course. I think it was a gerbil or a hamster. It was a rabbit. It was a, maybe it was a rabbit. I don't know. But we honored that animal and the short life that it lived. Uh, my wife carried, a be- carried on a beautiful funeral out there. I watched from inside the house as my sons gave a wonderful three-gun salute. Uh, you know, it's, it's not quite as effective when it's just pop and you pull the trigger. What were we doing? We were marking the occasion. But you know what? I don't even remember what that animal is or was. It's fertilizer. So are all of us. All of us, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now, we can look at that in a sort of fatalistic way, in a kind of, well, that's just, you're just worm food. And in fact, Solomon is saying here, if you judge men simply by, well, what they're worth to power, to the state, to society, then yeah, Well, what does he say? I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And then there's this interesting question, who knows? Who knows what happens to a man upon the occasion of his death or all people? What life under the sun teaches us is this, without proper perspective, and we'll get that perspective, is that we're just organic material. And if you believe that, guess what you will do with power? Whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Now, Solomon is actually combating two problems that men have. Their arrogance, that they think too highly of themselves, and also they think too low of themselves. And here Solomon corrects both of those problems. In the first place, what Solomon is saying is this. Guess what? You die just like your cattle. How dare you exercise authority in this unjust and wicked way? Who are you, O man, in comparison to the gods or to God? Who are you to think, O man, that God is mindful of us? And so Solomon wishes to remind men that you are but breath and blood. You live a hundred, 120 years at the most. Who are you? Why do you wield such power so wickedly? Why do you think of yourself in a way that you have no authority or permission to think of yourself? You breathe the same air and you get put in the same dirt as your livestock. That's the first corrective. The second corrective is this. We think too low of ourselves. We do not reflect upon the reality that we are made in the image of God. 
And therefore, since we are made in the image of God, though our lives are short, though we are often afflicted with disease, though we do get put in the same meadow as we do with the cattle that we raised, we know where we go. Or do we? Do you know? Do you understand? Solomon asks. Who knows whether the spirit of man, Solomon isn't having a crisis. He's speaking to a people who are in crisis and he is walking them through the steps, the Socratic steps of seeking to evaluate for themselves whether or not you believe the person you're sitting next to and interacting with is one who is made in the image of God. And if you do, you will not abuse them with your power and you will not think of them like beasts but as those made in the image of God. You will exalt in their immortality, but you will not think that they are capable of discerning for themselves with the information that we find under the sun what is right and what is wrong. Arrogance on the one hand and abuse on the other. It's a kind of schizophrenic, sinful condition. And what biblical wisdom does is it reveals the corrective to both of these. In order for injustice to be remedied, not fully in this life, but to be remedied, if we are to pursue justice, we must see that everyone who comes into the courts of men deserves to be treated as image bearers of God. This is why... God takes great pains in Deuteronomy to discuss how you can have a fair trial. And that just because someone comes in and they're dirty and stinky doesn't mean they don't deserve true justice. Of course, right now, the opposite is true, isn't it, in our culture? We despise privilege. Why do you think that's the case? Because we cannot abide that there is one who does the blessing outside of our control. We want to be the ones who bless the name of others and not God. You know what the Bible calls privilege? Blessing. And nowhere in the scripture are we to despise the blessings of God. We are called to do what? Give thanks and rejoice. And so an essential point of biblical wisdom is this. Apart from living in God's, in light of God's revelation, we will treat each other like beasts. And therefore, it won't matter. How else do you kill 1.5 billion babies? How do you do that? These aren't kittens, these are human beings. We live in a culture that is less reluctant to kill animals than they are people. Where is our morality gone? Where is it gone? They have removed from the center of the identity of a person that they are made in the image of God. Now, that does not mean that they are perfect Your children are not born innocent. They're born idolaters. They are born deserving wrath. But they are gods. He made them. And he is the judge. 
He calls the shots. And what he has said to us is this. Exercise true justice upon those who we know where they go. In fact, Micah 6.8, in speaking to a culture that was rampant with unjust, injustice, Israel, Old Testament Israel, says this. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? From whom do you learn true justice? Children, you probably learned it from your parents to some extent. Where did they learn it from? Well, they learned, where did they learn it? From God. God has revealed to us the path of true justice, not just what truth looks like, but how it is to actually be carried out deuteronomically. Part of the problem in the church is we've stopped reading Deuteronomy because we don't think it's for the church anymore. We think it's for Old Testament Israel, and we're not about to read that old outdated stuff. Don't tell me about that. We're sophisticated. Are we? Are we really sophisticated? Come on. Who do you learn true justice from? And not just in sweeping broad strokes, but how do you argue? How do you determine between two men who are arguing over some piece of property how to decide between them? Who is fit to do such a thing? Well, God has given us instructions. From whom do you learn what separates man and beast? Mothers, I know sometimes you wonder. I don't know the difference. My son likes taking a bath less than my own dog. My dog hates taking baths, by the way. She hates it. She's a beast. Why would you practice justice if a man is but a beast, what does it matter? In fact, if anything, justice gets in the way of expediency. You know it would be easy sometimes for sessions of churches? If the people who left the church giving the elders the finger on the way out the door, if we could just say, you know what? You're done. But we got to go through this whole trial process. And we've got to send them a certified letter. And we have to invite him to come. We have to provide him counsel if he wants it. Now, if he doesn't show up, guess what? There's still another step. And we have to go through these steps. Do you know why? Because your session does not have the right to just say, you're done. Get out of here. Because what would happen? We would sacrifice justice on the altar of expediency. And this is hard enough for righteous men to do. What about wicked men? Do you see the connection? Men will do all manner of harm to others if they do not see them as image bearers, but just bipedal animals. Who cares? Do you see how desperate life is if death is this great yawning chasm that lies before us? Do you begin to understand the psychoses of the people that live among you in Gaston County and in the West, where we have thrown off, thank goodness, we have thrown off the shackles of divine revelation, and we no longer have to be ruled by the law of God. Man, we made it. We made it! Do you feel like we've made it? In fact, what is happening is this. 
God is teaching us as he reveals to us the nature and extent of our sin, just how much we desperately need him. God is testing them, verse 18, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now here, God is not teaching us that we are not made in his image. Here, beasts is used differently. Solomon is saying that we're not like God, that we are of the stuff of earth, that we are creatures, not creator, and we ought not assign ourselves the same authority and power as God himself has. Boy, oh boy. You do not want to live in a country that has an emperor that thinks that he is the incarnate God of earth. This is Egypt. You do not want to live in a country that is ruled by a president that thinks if he's elected... He will solve all of your problems. It's a good thing we don't live in a country like that, right? This is every president. This is every king. This is every politician. This is life under the sun. And so our full and final hope is this, two things. They're actually covered so well in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The last judgment and the resurrection of the dead. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter on the last judgment, but it begins this way. God has appointed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. In that day, not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but also all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Whoa. You ready? You got your file? My dad used to carry legal pads. That was his bread and butter. My dad's a civil litigator. And if you would go to my dad's law practice in the 80s and the 90s, and even in the early 2000s, it was file cabinet after file cabinet of paper. Now, those of you who are young are getting to the point now where you can almost say, what's paper? (laughs) Paper is what we used to record things on. Go to the DMV. They still use a lot of paper. And I would walk into these filing rooms as a kid, And these legal volumes in which all the case laws were written in the state of Georgia. And it wouldn't just be one room where all of your sins and misdeeds are filed. There isn't a building big enough to record the paper necessary to write down the things and offenses that you have committed against God in 2020. You can't do it. And yet we are to appear before God as judge of all the earth and say, well, your honor, I think I got a pretty good case. And here it is. Are you ready? Rotary club. I used to volunteer at a nursing home. I was so nice to my baby sister when I was younger. This is what terrified Luther. That before almighty God, he would stand and he had nothing to offer him except what? a heaping pile of sins. This is what Solomon is trying to get us to see. 
That every time you present a judgment against another, it is a sinner pronouncing judgment against another sinner. And your only hope as judge or the one upon whom the sentence is being pronounced is that Christ will acquit you of all your sins. And you need to live that way. The way that C.S. Lewis said it is this. You live among, you sin against, you dance and play and laugh and marry and work with not mortals, but immortals. And you yourself will never die. And it is not just our souls that will live forever. One day we will be raised either to heaven or to the eternal lake of fire. We need to live in light of that. And what tells us that is not what we see under the sun. It is the holy word of God. And so then we look at the last judgment and the resurrection of the dead. Lastly, the bodies of men, this is also from the confession of faith, after death, return to the dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received in the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, and they wait the full redemption of their bodies. Now listen. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and under darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from the bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Guilty or innocent. Judgment comes after death. And that is the judgment that we are to think of. Every deed Every thought, every moment, every affection is to be brought into the light, not of what happens merely under the sun, but of the last judgment and the resurrection of the dead. So it isn't just death and taxes, is it? It's eternal life. We are made for that. And we must live in light of that. But while we are here, we are to consider how we might bring that kingdom that is in heaven to earth. How do we do that as a church? We endeavor to practice true justice, however infallibly, and we are to declare to men that we know where you go when you die. And we delight even while here in the many gifts that God has given. How will we see the one? Look at that end of verse 22. Who can bring him, that is man, to see what will be after him? It is only God. Will we live in light of what we will see that day? Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we ask. 